This is Important, a podcast by the Brexit Civil Society Alliance. I am Jacob Millen Bamford. In autumn 2020, the UK government introduced the Internal Market Bill to Parliament. This legislation sparked immediate controversy for many reasons, one being when a minister admitted the bill would break international law. The Alliance, along with many other organisations, have highlighted key threats of the bill, including to the rule of law, devolution and the maintenance of high standards across the UK. The bill has now passed through the House of Commons and it is currently in the House of Lords. But I wanted to learn more about the issues the bill presents, so I spoke to Charles Whitmore. Hello and welcome to This Is Important. Please can you introduce yourself and explain why you know about the Internal Market Bill? Yeah, sure. So... You know, my name is Charles Whitmore. I'm a research associate with the Wales Governance Centre and Wales Council for Voluntary Action. I coordinate the Wales Civil Society Forum on Brexit, which is a partnership between the two institutions funded by the Legal Education Foundation to provide coordination and information on the impact of Brexit for third sector organisations in Wales. Now, I'm familiar with the UK Internal Market Bill because this is a very significant piece of Brexit-related legislation with considerable implications for civil society. So I've been working with organisations in Wales and across the UK to reinforce the sector's voice around this bill. Incidentally, I also conducted doctoral research on what is known as mutual recognition, which plays a big part in the legislation. So I'm also academically very interested in it as well. Without going into the issues with the bill quite yet, could you outline what the purpose of the bill is? So the UK Internal Market Bill is intended to prevent potential regulatory differences that might emerge as a result of powers returning from the EU from making it more difficult for traders in goods and services to do business throughout the UK. It would do this by enabling traders to essentially bypass local requirements in a whole host of areas, potentially around environmental standards or food labelling, for instance, and still be able to sell their goods and services without complying with those. Let's talk about devolution. Can you outline why the bill challenges the devolved settlements? Well, the bill is problematic from the perspective of devolution for two broad reasons, I think. First, on a procedural level, you know, it's been drawn up without appropriate involvement of the devolved administrations. The Scottish government has made its opposition clear early on, and the Welsh government, which was engaging, was cut out of discussions around a month before the white paper consultation on the bill was launched, seemingly at the instruction of Michael Gove. I think that the narratives spun by UK government uh, throughout the process so far have been really disingenuous in regards to devolution. You know, that the fact that powers are returning from the EU, are in, and, and indeed are largely returning to the devolved authorities, has been used by the UK government to qualify the bill as a power surge. But they've tried very hard to draw attention away from the fact that this is meaningless, really, if those powers are indirectly undermined and subverted, which is what this bill does. Substantively, these principles have been drawn up without any regard for ongoing involvement of the devolved administrations. So to give you an example, if enacted as is, the bill, the entire bill, would be what is called a protected enactment, which means that the devolved legislatures would be prevented from modifying it. Now, this is highly irregular and is usually reserved only for bills with a profound constitutional significance. 
There's also hardly any involvement of the devolved institutions written into the bill. So, for example, around governance of the Office of the Internal Market, which would be in charge of monitoring, um, including in areas of devolved competence. There are extensive powers for the Secretary of State to amend parts of the legislation unilaterally without consulting the devolved administrations, even in areas like exclusions, which are really of primary import to the devolved nations. Finally, it's crucial to recognise that the bill undermines the existing intergovernmental work taking place with the common frameworks, which, funnily enough and incidentally, goes a long way to preventing the very problem this bill is trying to address in the first place. Thank you for explaining the challenges to the devolved settlement. My understanding is there's a threat to standards through something called mutual recognition. Please can you explain what mutual recognition is? Sure. So I mentioned earlier that the bill seeks to prevent internal market barriers by enshrining in legislation what is called the market access commitment. Now, this is formed of two principles, non-discrimination and mutual recognition, and each of these are applicable to different types of rules. I can't really explain one without the other, so I'll have to explain both. But basically, non-discrimination means that rules cannot convey a direct or indirect advantage to local goods and services. So to give you an example again, this would definitely prevent a rule from being implemented that was only applicable to goods and services from one part of the UK and not locally, because it would be directly discriminatory. Indirectly, however, this may prevent a requirement, for example, that animals only be transported a certain distance, because while applicable to everyone, it would obviously be more difficult for a business that's further away to comply with the rule. So this might raise concerns, for example, where local governments are trying to support uh, the local foundational economy. Now, to come to the second principle, which was the focus of your question, mutual recognition is much broader than that, because where rules are within its scope, it says that if a good or service is sold in one part of the UK, then it can be sold in any other part of the UK without complying with local requirements. And a really good example here is around the banning of single-use plastics, because Wales is trying to is seeking to ban more products than, than England. So, for example, Wales would ban plastic cutlery, plates, balloon sticks, and some food containers, whereas England would not. And under these proposals, Welsh traders would be prohibited from selling these in Wales, but then traders from England would still be able to do so. So you've got this really incoherent situation that arises. Before, before I end there, I should say that these are actually relatively common tools for regulating internal markets. You know, we, we know them well through EU law, but they're also used in Australia and Canada, for example. However, they have been here, and especially for the mutual recognition principle, been completely misunderstood, and they're arguably not at all suited to the UK's political, legal, and constitutional arrangements. And finally, I think this stems from the fact that mutual recognition is not meant to be absolute. It's usually managed with pre- and post-legislative intergovernmental mechanisms, a degree of shared minimum and maximum level rules and public policy exceptions that would, in a way, shield devolved competence from the, from the over-centralising effect that it would otherwise have. Mutual recognition is designed to work within and stimulate a space for meaningful discussion between administrations about the very merits of policy divergence and innovation locally within an internal market. That's the ideal. And obviously, this requires a considerable degree of trust between administrations. 
so that they feel confident in mutually recognising the validity of the other administration's ways of regulating and ensuring standards. However, the entire process in this bill, and more generally around Brexit, you know, the trust between the governments of the UK has been soured, and this type of system will simply not work for the UK without considerable improvements to its overarching systems of intergovernmental relations. Thank you for explaining what mutual recognition means and non-discrimination. How does this threaten to undermine standards in the UK, though? This is the race to the bottom concern you hear a lot about, and it is a common concern for systems of mutual recognition generally, including in the, in the EU. The concern arises because the principle enables traders to bypass local requirements. Now, given the volume of trade Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland do with England, this will invariably put pressure on devolved standards to converge around what are essentially English standards, because otherwise you risk putting local traders at a competitive disadvantage. Without wanting to overly generalise, the risk to standards therefore stems here from the fact that there seems to be an increasing appetite in the devolved nations to introduce standards that are higher than those in England or at the UK level, and their ability to do this would be completely subverted by this legislation. And crucially, uh, this is a risk with these proposals, I think, for two broad reasons. Firstly, there's a striking lack of public policy exceptions within the bill. We would usually expect local authorities to be able to exempt a particular rule from mutual recognition and non-discrimination, and therefore maintain its applicability to goods and services if the rule is pursuing an objective that is beneficial to the public. So, for example, we would at least expect protection of the environment, animal welfare, but we would also expect to see things like public health, labour standards and consumer welfare as grounds for excluding rules from the scope of the bill. Secondly, this type of governance would usually run alongside some form of minimum standards. Now, the UK has a pretty obvious route here with the common frameworks, which, which are pursuing precisely this. But the UK government has not been clear in defining the connection between these frameworks and the bill. As it stands at the moment, the bill would seem to very incoherently supersede them. And Given how broad the bill is, this would deprive the entire system of any incentive for the UK government to engage in future intergovernmental work on the common frameworks. So I think that placing the common frameworks process front and centre in the governance of the UK internal market solves many of these problems in the bill. So that could, for example, be making the market access principles, so mutual recognition and non-discrimination, secondary to the common frameworks process. That is to say that uh, they would only be applicable if the governments have failed to achieve a common framework in a specific area. This is the approach favoured by the Welsh government, for instance. But at the very least, we could think about excluding the common frameworks or policy covered by the common frameworks from the scope of the legislation. You could then even consider having a process by which if a particular sector proves to be problematic because exceptions are being invoked too frequently or trade is too disrupted, then you could seek to have a duty in the bill to try and reach a common framework in that area. This potential undermining of standards sounds very concerning. Another concerning thing is that it was confirmed by a government minister that the bill breaks international law. Can you explain how this bill does this and elaborate on why that's bad? You are right, Jacob. So Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, stated before the House of Commons that the bill breaches international law in a, quote, specific and limited way. Now, 
The issue stems from the fact that the Protocol on Northern Ireland, agreed as part of the Withdrawal Agreement, effectively keeps Northern Ireland in the EU single market, and so products there must in large still comply with EU standards. Whereas after the end of transition, products in Great Britain will be able to diverge from those EU standards. So effectively, there will be some customs procedures necessary, and the protocol makes this quite clear. Now, part five of the bill breaches international law because it gives powers to ministers to make regulations in the field of state aid and around these customs procedures that run counter to the requirements of the protocol that the UK has agreed to. The bill also deactivates direct effect in this area, that is to say, the ability for individuals to be able to enforce derived rights directly before national courts, again, despite the UK government agreeing to the contrary in the withdrawal agreement. Finally, I think it's particularly telling how clearly this bill spells this out when it states that regulations made under the relevant parts have effect notwithstanding any relevant international or domestic law with which they may be incompatible. And if this wasn't clear enough, it even goes on to list various international instruments that are included, but essentially then goes on to state that everything is caught anyway, even international human rights treaties. So from a rule of law standpoint, this is clearly very troubling. Firstly, it sets a very dangerous precedent in disapplying international human rights commitments in the context of an already challenging narrative around human rights this UK government has spun throughout the Brexit process. And secondly, it would be deeply damaging to the UK's reputation internationally, which would not only weaken its negotiating position, but crucially it would impede its ability to act as a globally responsible actor in the field of human rights, and of course damage its resulting ability to exert pressure to progress human rights on the global stage. I will say that there have been some attempts by the government to put human rights on the face of the bill uh, since its introduction, but without going into detail, these feel largely tokenistic to me and do not address the core concern. There's clearly already a lot of concerning things in this bill, but are there any other issues that those listening at home should know about? Well, I I wish there wasn't, but to be honest, the drafting of the bill has been quite rushed, I think, and I think this has at least partly contributed to a myriad of substantive issues. However, the bill is also underpinned by some really fundamental issues that, in my mind, all stem from a misunderstanding of the added value that devolution brings to the UK. And of course, hanging above all of this is the fact that Scotland has refused legislative consent. The Welsh government has recommended that the Senate refused legislative consent. But it seems all too possible that, just as with the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, the UK government is going to press ahead anyway, with potentially relatively few concessions. If I had to draw out a few final points around significant problems with this bill, firstly, there are several other attacks on devolution. It it reverses the devolution of state aid. It provides extensive spending powers to the UK government in areas of devolved competence. And they've made it quite clear that these would be used to implement the UK Shared Prosperity Fund, and that this would be distributed centrally. On top of that, their language, which was initially focused around industrial strategy for the Shared Prosperity Fund, is now, in the context of this bill, talking about priorities around internal market infrastructure spending, You know, this is a far cry from where the third sector would like to see the Shared Prosperity Fund go, I think, and focusing on equality and social cohesion. And I should be very clear here, I think. There seems to me to be no connection between these spending powers and the internal market objective of the legislation. Uh, There's a sense that this has been thrown into the bill almost opportunistically, and I really think it should be removed. Secondly, 
there, I think there's a fundamental incoherence in this bill about the connection between the common frameworks and the core principle of the bill itself. As it stands at the moment, it seems like the bill would completely override the common frameworks. And if we take, for example, the recently published provisional common framework on nutritional labelling and food standards, it says that the framework will maintain, as a minimum, the equivalent flexibility as afforded by current EU rules. Yet, the proposed UK internal market provisions provide far less flexibility than what the devolved nations have enjoyed under EU rules. So it's, it's really unclear what the connection is and how these would be reconciled. And I'd say the very final point, uh, the very final problem with this bill that I'd like to raise is that of governmental overreach. You know, the bill contains significant unilateral powers for the Secretary of State. And in some cases, um, even without consulting the devolved administrations, and there's been no effort whatsoever to, facil- to facilitate wider civil society engagement on the bill, yet it intersects so clearly with many third sector interests, not least which is the replacement of EU funding, on which, for example, in Wales, the third sector has done a considerable amount of co-production work with the Welsh government. The Alliance has published a range of materials on the Internal Market Bill, which are linked in the show notes and available on our website. I asked Charles what are the resources he would recommend. There's been a considerable amount of expert work on this bill in a very short space of time, so we aren't short of resources. Uh, We've published some materials on the Wales Government Centre's website, and the Wales Council for Voluntary Action, WCVA, have done so as well. However, I would also strongly recommend materials on uh, UK and a Changing Europe's database, as well as the Centre for Constitutional Change and the Institute for Government. Equally, I think I'd like to say that if any third sector organisations would like to join work or have discussions about the implications of this bill, you know, please do get in touch. We're only too happy to help. This podcast was made by the Brexit Civil Society Alliance. We are a UK-wide alliance of charities, voluntary and campaigning organisations. The alliance does not take a position on the 2016 EU referendum but seeks to raise concerns on behalf of its members and work to ensure that the Brexit process delivers on three principles. Open and accountable lawmaking, a high standard UK and no governance gap after Brexit. You can get in touch with us via Twitter at BrexitCSA or email us at info at BrexitCivilSocietyAlliance.org. Please subscribe on Spotify or your favourite podcast app and share this with your friends and colleagues. Links to the campaigns and resources mentioned by guests will be linked in the show notes. We also have further resources on COVID-19 and EU citizens on our website, also linked in the show notes. Our show is researched by Catherine Sturgeon, which is produced and hosted by me, Jacob Millen-Bamford. You've been listening to This Is Important, 